Constantinople has fallen, and all across Europe, ancient vampires known as Methuselah rise to claim vast territories as their own. This is the War of Princes, where the political maneuvering of old stand side by side with the armies of ghouls and canines clashing in the night. But vampires are not the only ones making this land their own. In the wild places, the Guru have their cairns. Mages have ancient sites of power for magic. The Shadow Inquisition has risen to eradicate the enemies of God. And the enigmatic Fae have their own plans. Welcome to the Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 9 of season 2 of the World of Dark Ages podcast, a look at gaming in the medieval world. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. So, anything new on your end? Well, we Windrow came back for some inexplicable reason, so yeah, exactly. Um, which podcast dog liked because she likes the <laughs> snow. Um, I didn't really that much because it was was very... Um, unexpected and a lot of it at the say at all of the same time time and now the snow is melting away which is annoying because you get the whole m- melty thingy as as usual yes i know yeah. it's really bad <laughs> well uh here in denmark we've had interesting uh weather it's been situations where i've looked outside and and thought okay well i can wear a light jacket because it's nice and sunny, go outside, have to put on sunglasses, and then two minutes later it's hailing. So I don't know, there's there's something weird going on with the weather. No, but but no raining, no frogs raining or anything like that, the water turning in red or anything like that? I, I haven't really noticed anything, mm. but I'll, I'll keep a lookout. I have two weeks vacation now, so yeah. I'll have a chance to poke around, see if I can find anything. And with Easter upon us, you know, the most important Christian holiday of the Middle Ages, it is only appropriate that we take a look at the first half of Dark Ages Inquisitor written by... And here's a long list. Emily K. Dresner Thornburg, Miranda Carlis, Matthew McFarlane, Anthony Reagan, Sarah Rourke, C.A. Suleiman, Adam Tinworth, Janet Troutvetter, and Michael A. Goodwin, developed by Matthew McFarland. The cover is in the style of both Vampire and Mage before it, with just the name and the symbol of the quote-unquote type of Supernatural uh, on the book cover. I like the background. I assume it's meant to look like some kind of red fabric. But the font isn't a favorite of mine, and the simple, this this weird pipeback knife with an ornate hilt, it really didn't look good for me. No, you, you can see that this book was made in kind of the height of the Photoshop era, where like, yeah, we can add things together, so we're gonna do that, and it's gonna look awesome. And a few years later, it doesn't. Uh, yeah, it's it's weird, and I understand that it's supposed to be some kind of holy relic knife but it would be very uh, difficult to to actually use properly if if you look at it so it, it's it, it, the handle is a huge crucifix um with like an aura behind jesus's head which makes it very large and and probably very uncomfortable to use in any kind of manner at all yeah, and I mean, it's supposed to be the symbol of the Shadow Inquisition, just like you have the Ankh as the symbol of vampires, and you had the cross made of various objects for the mages, but I don't think it, it really mm. fits as their their symbol 
And now that you mention it, yeah, it, it does look like somebody decided, okay, we're going to make this out of different elements and then Photoshop it it together. But so uh, it's it's a bit of a miss here. But as for the interior art, I would say it generally ranges from good to quite good and interesting. But there are two specific things I want to talk about. The first are the full page pictures that are in between the chapters. They have a very Warhammer feel to me, which means that they are quite well done technically, but they don't always capture the historical sense of the game. Um, the knights on, on page 116 are awesome, uh, even though the sword and plate armor is about 100 years too early. While the At two least, yeah. yeah, while the two pictures on pages 22 and 56 respectively, they look more like something appropriate for Warhammer Fantasy or even Warhammer 40k. So it's, yeah, they're, they're beautiful, but I, I think they stick out a bit. The, the second thing I, I just want to mention is the pictures of the various orders of the Inquisition. And I think they look almost caricaturish, especially the one on page 131, which is the Knight of Acre. I can forgive his mustache, but his weapons are just silly. He wields a weird narrow sword with a two-handed grip on a blade about the length of a one-handed sword and he has a ball and chain with a chain that's so long that if he doesn't hit an opponent there's every chance that he's going to smack himself yeah i i noticed that as well uh i do i i think the <laughs> the, the theme of the pictures really is uh inquisition and not necessarily historical inquisition because i i agree that that they have uh, some some rather uh, Warhammer Inquisitor look to them. Uh, the the person on on page twenty two though, I think it's supposed to be uh, at Simici actually because it's uh, he's he's sewing on some kind of huge flesh mound and he has a dragon on his uh, on his shoulder. So so it like I I can kind of excuse the the. Uh, the, the more um, kind of supernatural or non-historical aspect of him. I just noticed he has, it seems like he has six fingers on his left hand. So yeah, he's definitely some kind of weird witch or something. Um, but, so, but, but yeah, they, they're really cool. But as you say, they're, they're very Warhammer-ish. Um, for some reason also, there are quite a few people that are wearing studs on their fabric clothes, which is just... Like it makes even less sense to put studs on fabric than it makes it, putting them on leather. Uh, like it's it's too labor intensive, and you can just like there's no need to to rivet things to fabric. You can just sew things on. That's kind of one of the good things about <laughs> fabric. Uh, as as for the um, uh, for the pictures of the different orders, yeah, I I do agree. Um, Especially the one for for Sisters of St. John, which is this supposedly... It, it depicts this nun that obviously has a vision of, of something terrible. In this case, it seems to be a, a crying child. But her facial expression um, and overall look just reminds me of, of uh, uh, the Swedish author and illustrator Sven Nordqvist. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He, he's made a ton of, of really interesting children's books. Most famous is called Petson and Findus, which is about um, yeah. about a guy called Petson and his cat called Findus. And and the, the same kind of facial expression that he puts on on people in the background because he has a lot of details. 
and something happens in the background and someone is being chased by a cow or being surprised by something and and the nun in this picture has the same kind of <laughs> facial expression that that he would put um in on his like side characters which is kind of juxtaposed to this uh, the image next to it which is this crying baby so so yeah it it it's a very weird mix of of like reactions i get when i when i see these pictures uh, but the habit she's wearing is actually quite nice and and that one isn't the the actual outfit is is really nice um as is the the one that the kind of friary looking guy from the house of Murnau on page 137 is wearing so so yeah it's some of them i i, I really like but it's it's kind of a weird I, I get some weird reactions. They mix my my sweet sweet childhood <laughs> with with this horrible game of of uh, horror and supernatural and torture. So yeah, I, I don't really know how to feel. <laughs> um, yes, well, we uh, we start with an intro story, and I have to say this one's really good. I liked it, and I especially liked that the antagonist of the story was not a vampire, because obviously the the Shadow Inquisition and vampires are quite tied together and we get a lot about vampires later on but in this intro story they've resisted the urge to make it about vampires however just with the uh, as as with the chapter pictures i get a strong warhammer vibe from this with a few changes this could just as well have been a warhammer fantasy story and it didn't really feel at all our medieval world to me if you understand what i'm saying yeah yeah i get your point so, so Bert, what did you think about the, the intro story? Do you have anything to uh, add? Yeah, as far as in-character story goes, it I, it was surprisingly good. I, I really liked it, and and unlike many of the others, it, it actually set the tone in in a way that I liked. Yeah, exactly. This time it was good. Um, <laughs> so, but, but yeah, I, I do agree that it feels a bit warhammery, but but I think it's very on par when it comes to the kind of themes that this game is about with with um, not only presenting the different orders in in a nice way but also kind of the temptation and uh, just because you're fighting for for god and for humanity doesn't mean that you are free from from sin and being a bad person so so in that aspect i i really liked it so next comes the introduction which is short but good, giving a quick overview of the game and reminding people that you need the Vampire Core Book to play this, uh, just like with, with Mage. We've talked about that before. And it also has a sidebar that talks about how Catholicism is a real faith, so you need to be respectful. And I actually think that it's kind of nice to see this because they always do it with what one might consider minority faiths in the, the Western world. But here you have Catholicism, which in addition to being very much a majority faith in the Western world, is also one where, especially when this book came out, it was very fashionable to really talk down about. So I like that they say, yeah, well, there are still people out there who believe this, so just with other faiths, be respectful of it. One thing that I love here is the part where it mentions that Inquisitors must be careful not to just kill anyone identified as the enemy, because what if their soul could have been saved? What yeah. if the sorcerer could have been converted or the vampire been redeemed? They might damn a soul to hell when it could have been redeemed. And that's pretty damn awesome. 
because otherwise you just get this let's kill everyone and have God sort them out. No, the job of the Inquisition isn't to kill the enemy, it is yeah. to fight the enemy. And one of the ways to fight the enemy is to ensure that fewer souls go to hell. Otherwise, yeah, we get a lexicon and some sources to use and we see more and more websites getting mentioned in these books. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. At some point I need to, to check if any of these websites are, are still around, but... Uh, but yeah, I, I really agree with the point you're making about this game uh, and, and the Inquisition and uh, like the historical Inquisition wasn't about condemning people to death. Uh, it was about saving their souls. And of course, the, the church and the Inquisition would favor saving the souls over saving the mortal bodies because the, the bodies... They will just die and rot away, but your soul is immortal and will hopefully li- or will live on forever in either heaven or hell. So, so you can you, you get a rather interesting uh, kind of how how do how do we prioritize the different the different aspects? Because uh, of course there was corruption even back then. So of course there were corrupt inquisitors, inquisitors and and corrupts corrupt members of the clergy that used all of the power for their own benefits. But the, uh, the the core idea was, as you said, to save people. And and that can turn rather interesting, especially in a game like this. So, so yeah, it's they're setting up some really interesting uh, points to, to start your game from, which I really, really like. And obviously it also gives you this idea that this is not the real papal inquisition or for that matter the spanish inquisition insert your own monty python references here this is the shadow inquisition which is the hidden inquisition that is fighting against the forces of hell so as we will see later while obviously they oppose heresy that's not what their job is that's left to the actual papal inquisition their job is to handle Mm. the supernatural threats to christendom which is yeah, your your monster hunters uh, in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Which which in a way kind of explains why everything is so warhammery because it's it's kind of the the warhammer aspect of of the whole Inquisition. Yeah, chapter one is an in character look at what the Shadow Inquisition, you know, the organization this game is about, knows about various supernatural entities and its really annoying the way it's laid out as a medieval manuscript because there's no page numbers and that annoyed the hell out of me pun not intended Mm. um but as mentioned it's an in-character framing story and it works since it's illustrating knowledge once again there are a few warhammer vibes in the story and i got the idea that it was trying to be a bit of a horror story but to me it never really felt scary or horrifying it does give us something we've been missing for a while. A vampire in a monastery. <laughs> yeah, <Woo-hoo>! yeah. <laughs> also, a lot of the monasteries below ground and the narrator of the tale is told that this is due to an earthquake, which is a cool idea. I'll have to remember that as an explanation as to why a certain structure might have a lot of underground areas. Well, there was an earthquake. A lot of it went underground, but it's still usable. That's that's really a cool idea that vampires can use to justify why they they have these underground underground rooms so kudos to the to the writer for for getting that one yeah and we had in oh which book was that when you had the the underwater monastery as well which is kind of a uh that was 
oh, uh, now I can't remember the name of it, but it w- was where they had the Grail Knights, so it must have been Ashen Knight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but but yeah, there there are a bunch of of cool reasons why you could have underground uh, buildings, and and of course you have these um, here and there where you have entire cities built into rocks like they, they don't have houses they have holes in the ground basically but but their entire cities so so yeah it's it's cool um i i do agree that this particular framing story i it yeah it's it's not scary and i don't think it is as good as the the first introduction uh, story and yeah, yeah, it's it's just a bit annoying with with the whole. It's it's kind of hard to um, to find your way through. Uh, it has some cool illustrations, but but for some reason they uh, they change from just having the one uh, paragraph to to two paragraphs per or what do you call them um, per columns? Yeah, columns per per page, which I really don't see any reason for. Uh, and then they switch back and then they have like uh, an insert in the middle of it, which is just, yeah, it's it's a bit messy, to be perfectly honest. And you have the, the main character telling a story and then he tells a story uh, that his mentor told him. And then he tells a story that his mentor t- uh, told him about a time his mentor was told a story. So it, it that gets confusing as hell sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it can. And, but, but yeah, it, it kind of fills its purpose, but it could have been done better there, there are some some kind of like details in it that i really do like though that that on some pages the um the script is a bit faded and some some things have been uh, crossed over and um like in the end it's something that's again done with with bad photoshop uh, effects but um, it's it's something that's meant to be blotted out or ink being dripped on the uh, on the parchment, which is again it's kind of cool. Uh, I I like the little things that it done, but the the main meat of the story isn't fantastic. There are also several references to putting things down on paper, and as we mentioned the last yeah. time, at this point in history, people wrote on parchment. Yeah. Also, uh, in one of the stories, we have a knight who travels after dark to lure out bandits and punish them, which makes no sense since bandits attack travelers. And in the medieval times, nobody really traveled at night. So you wouldn't lure out bandits by traveling at night because they'd be sleeping. They'd be waiting until it was light to ambush the travelers. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> that's that's a weird yeah. one. Um, and finally, at one point, the narrator strikes someone with a lantern and embeds glass in him. And I don't think a monastery at this time would have lanterns with glass. That would probably be considered too expensive. And even if this is like a corrupt monastery where they um, revel in luxury, surely the narrator would have remarked on the fact that they had glass lanterns. Mm. Uh, The lanterns would probably have uh, panes made of very, very thin horn or what else do they use? Sometimes like uh, waxed paper, paper with beeswax on it. I've seen that used as well. Yeah, I uh, yeah, you, you can you can stretch hides, or I I know that it's a medieval market thing that they sell lanterns where they stretched um, different kind of of bladders or or intestines. But I've I've actually never seen a proper historical reference for that. But but yeah, it, it kind of works. But but yeah, you you wouldn't have the kind of modern 
modernish lantern kind of like you you see in in someone holding up uh, a lantern in in a uh, mine in in a western movie for example those came a lot later and and even just the, the ones with the smaller the kind of more bullseye ice uh, lantern were uh, i think i'm pretty sure that they were a lot later and and the thing is that if if you use glass for those the glass would be rather thick so it wouldn't really shatter that easy not in the same way as as our modern very thin glass would do at least yeah exactly there are two things in this story that i really want to draw attention to and the first one is that the narrator at one point talks about what is generally called the blood libel this idea that jews use the blood of christians especially christian children Mm -hmm. in their religious practices now he does mention that this is just something that he has heard and that his mentor told him that this is not true and this um, and this was actually something that was used against jews in the middle ages I, I just would have been more comfortable if this has been had been mentioned in an, in something that was not an in-character chapter, but in a general description of the world that they mentioned Christians used this as uh, a tool to oppress the Jews and a lot of them believed it, but it isn't true because when it's repeated in character, I just think it's a bit uncomfortable, even if the narrator is immediately told that no, this isn't true. The second thing is the constant use of homosexuality as a sinful practice with which, yes, it most certainly was according to the church. And it's clear that uh, in one instance, it's a demon that is using homosexuality specifically because it's a sin. However, this is far from the first book that makes use of this medieval belief. And it gets a bit annoying to constantly hear about the horrible sin of homosexuality. I just wish they'd, they'd find something else to uh, to to use as a sinful practice. Yeah, and and especially since um, I I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but there are so many things that can that that are sins, and and a lot of them are uh, like if if you're going to tempt people into sin, have them eat meat on a Friday because that's probably a lot easier to to convince someone than than to to commit acts of of homosexuality for example at least from a medieval point of view like of course it's it it's nothing wrong with it but it's it's a step a lot further than than eating meat on a friday or or um taking interest from a loan for example but they're both sins so you can like you can you can start out with those things and and especially when it comes to usury you you could always just turn that up to 11 when it comes to corruption so it, so have a demon start out with uh, with like yeah but come on you 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 lent your plow to your neighbor so and and he had a really good harvest so shouldn't some of that belong to you because it's it was kind of thanks to you and then you can just snowball it from there with with someone demanding outrageous um interests for for stuff like that and and for me i think that would be a lot more interesting then as you say oh it's it's another act of homosexuality because that's the only scene we know of. come on like it's like e- even back when this book was written uh homosexuality was luckily a lot more in the mainstream and and yeah i i, I agree that it's kind of annoying and and sh- in a way shows a, a lack of Im- imagination almost that it's it's kind of always the go to like come on there are so many other things that you can use and do more interesting stuff with yeah and i'm i'm 
100% sure it wasn't the intention, but the way that it's presented in a lot of these books about the Middle Ages, it reinforces the stereotype of the depraved homosexual. Yeah. Uh, it's never the, oh, we have to hide what is a loving and healthy relationship mm. because homosexuality is so is so stigmatized. No, it's uh, in this story, this old blind monk with rotting teeth who lusts after the young body of someone else and... Yeah, it's it's shorthand for for uh, a boring bad guy, and and we've seen yeah, enough. Exactly. Of, and and even when this book came out, we had seen enough of that. Yeah. So chapter two presents the sh- Shadow Inquisition, and most of this chapter suffers from sidebar overload. Mm. Seriously, there's a span of four pages that had five sidebars, yeah. and it gets a bit annoying at times. The first part of the chapter is the history of the Shadow Inquisition, and it nicely includes information from previous books with people such as Rodrigue de Navarre from Iberia by Night and Gauthier de Dampierre, who's been in a number of books. But this never really grabbed me. I just didn't find myself caring all too much, and I don't think the history portion of this chapter is all that compelling. Yeah, I I agree. Um... Another thing that kind of annoyed me besides the the overabundance of of sidebars is the font they use for the the sub headlines uh, because it's it's supposed to be the semi handwriting semi medieval handwriting kind of stuff and the thing is it's it it's so difficult to read because the the letters kind of fade into it or they are too close to each other so sometimes i'm like is is that a p or a b or a d or is it a p next to an o like yeah it's it's just a bit annoying to read um and and i also agree that the like yeah it's it's a rather boring story the the actual framework for the story uh, which it shouldn't be because it's a cool topic and they should be able to do more of it and and in a way i kind of want to know more about it but like you read and then there's a sidebar and and then you keep on reading and then there's another sidebar so so you never get time enough to get into the whole story of it and find something interesting because oh look you're getting interrupted by another sidebar so yeah next we get a look at the various groups that are part of the shadow inquisition the next chapter focuses on them so all i have to say is here uh, say is that here i think they do a really good job of describing in depth what these groups are you get a really sense a uh, good sense of the various orders and what they stand for and i like that they spend so much time on them because obviously they're presenting something really new as opposed to uh, the various vampire clans or werewolf tribes that we kind of know from before uh, then we get a section on problems and that i thought was a bit weird it d- details internal troubles in the shadow inquisition and i assume that this was included so that you can have some internal tension and even internal politics but honestly i would think that if you're getting together to play some inquisitor you want to get inquisiting not play church politics <laughs> yeah well can you have the one without the other though i i i, can, I get your point but 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 yeah it's um well the way that it's set up they don't really interact that much with the church and i i kind of think that fighting the minions of satan should be a story enough in and of itself i mean sure you may want to 
from time to time talk about oh there's internal uh, trouble in in the inquisition it's just it's not what i want out of it i'm not saying it's bad it's just it's it's not what i would want out of a game i would want to focus on the whole inquisition rather than trying to sort out the teething problems of this new organization yeah okay yeah yeah that's that's a valid point uh, and and i don't disagree with that but i i think kind of the point they're trying to make is that they are so intertwined that that you kind of have to run into the one if you're doing the other but but yeah i i agree that if if i wanted or if i played a game of of uh, dark ages inquisitor uh, i i would also like to have like the 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 troop going around doing like in, inquisiting stuff and and not just playing church politics on on the other hand as uh, the name of the rose has shown us you you can combine the two in a oh, rather yes. cool way so if if you manage to do that i'm i'm all for it but but yeah I'll, i'd probably also be more interested in in the uh running around and and fighting monsters kind of uh kind of way or part of of the game yeah we end with a really great section that attempts to convey the medieval outlook on a number of things related to faith as well as give us an idea of what the inquisition knows and what their attitudes to a lot of things are both mundane and supernatural so you have things such as the church's approach to torture uh, what the shadow inquisitions approach to heresy and schisms are what christians generally thinks of jews and muslims and so on all in all this section is really good and contains some bits of information that should really be you know it should have been in a more general source book about the church in the middle ages so this last bit of the chapter i thought was really really good and informative yeah i i agree i i really like the kind of philosophical look on on things well just a detail that i really really did like was that they didn't have the iron maiden under ha, uh, yes. methods of torture which because the iron maiden is what, what was it you've you've actually seen the the original in quotes uh, one, haven't you? Isn't that in, in one of the castles that you like to visit down when you're in Germany? No, I, I, not that I'm aware of, but, but yeah, it, it was invented much, much later by, uh, I think, Bruce Dickinson, um, or did he become <laughs> the singer later? <laughs> that's, that's a different Iron Maiden. No, but, but there is, there yeah. is like the one famous one uh, that's often copied in movies. And It might uh, be and, in, in Castle Neuschwanstein, and if it is, then I've, I've definitely seen it, But I, because I've been to Neuschwanstein. But yeah, it's, it's one of those many, many things where the, um, uh, the Victorians made stuff up. Yeah, exactly, and, and they kind of made it because they, they wanted a medieval torture dungeon, and so they just made a bunch of stuff up, uh, including this. Um, on, on, <laughs> on the unfortunate topic of torture though and uh, again i um it, it raises some at least for me some rather interesting philosophical questions in in that you're you're not allowed to the, the church wasn't allowed to draw blood uh especially not when when torturing someone so you have all of these rather cruel and unusual ways of torturing people in ways that that in some ways are, are almost worse because you have basically waterboarding you have um wrist dilocation uh for example they they mention uh the strapado in which the victim's wrists are tied together and uh, the person is suspended in the air sometimes with weights attached to their feet um there was one version where 
your hands are tied behind your back and then you're being lifted oh by. yeah oh, oh. Uh, so so yeah the, the, there was some really horrible things going on uh and uh, yeah it's uh, like i don't think we really need to mention it but this is a very mature game and a very mature topic so and 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 they mention it later on as well that talk to your players about what you're comfortable with yeah. because there there are some uh really nasty things uh in this book um and, and almost on the same topic they they do mention the um again the kind of loopholes that I'm fond of when it comes to to rules and stuff like that that and you're you're only allowed to torture a, a person once so linguistically and and kind of legally you didn't stop torturing someone no. you just took a break and yeah. and then you would like yeah okay we 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 can have you sign a confession now or we can continue the 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 um, questioning um and and so you would get away from from the whole we're we're torturing him a second time no 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 we're just continuing the first and only torture uh which again kind of shows what what kind of evil or or at least like manipulative bastards these people were that they they used these kind of loopholes yeah. in this setting but it's also worth noticing noting that uh in the middle ages torture was considered an integral part of uh of an interrogation process it wasn't just that the inquisition or the catholic church thought okay we're going to torture people uh, secular authorities did it as well and if you were an executioner then your job wasn't just to, to kill people it was also to torture people because in a lot of cases a, a confession wasn't considered a real confession unless the person had been at least tortured a little bit because there was this idea that if that hadn't happened then how could you truly believe it but at the same time even though people sort of knew that torture had to be done um there was also a stigma attached to it so it wasn't just that oh well torture is just as fine as asking questions uh, and this is illustrated in the city of nuremberg where there is a bridge called Hinkersteg or the Executioner's Bridge. And it's called that not because people were executed on the bridge, but because this on this bridge, the Executioner lived. There's actually a house there, and that's where the Executioner lived because nobody wanted to be neighbors to the guy who tortured and killed people. So he had to live on a bridge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it wasn't uh, uncommon for, for the Executioner to be... Um, to be a former criminal and uh, at at some times and places they had to wear certain colors yeah uh, so so that everyone would know that um that he was the executioner and they could avoid him in the streets so you you have a lot of color coding for for your convenience in in the middle ages that the nobility are allowed to wear certain colors and um, and you have the royal purple, purple of course, that that uh, royalty were uh, only allowed to wear. So, so yeah, the, there was a bunch of stigma and, and people being ostracized because they were uh, they were the executioner and so on. So, so yeah, that's that's an interesting point as well. Yeah, but in general, I would say that this this last piece here, um, even if you don't read the book for anything else, I think reading this gives a greater insight into the medieval mindset and how the medieval world worked and that is in my opinion one of the the interesting aspects of these books because 
I'm thinking that when people play this, one of the reasons they play this is because they want to play in um, maybe not our specific history because supernatural things exist, but in a version of, of our history that's very close to what it was. So every little bit helps um, because as we've mentioned numerous times, people's mindset, uh, people's outlook, how things work, which is so different back then that it can sometimes be difficult to really understand what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. So chapter three concerns the organization of the Shadow Inquisition and the five orders that makes up its membership. It does a good job of going into depth about how the Shadow Inquisition is organized and gives an idea of how it functions, which is especially good since characters are by default members of the Shadow Inquisition. It's called Dark Ages Inquisition. <clears throat> so the section before the description of the individual orders is great in my opinion. Yes, I, I really like them. Uh, they're, I, I like the fact that they you can very much see that they wanted them to make them kind of like different branches or, or at least that they have different tasks so you have the more militant order and then you have the uh the the more um not not necessarily spying but the, the intelligence branch and then you have the the different weirdos and and things like that but but yeah they, they are very distinct from each other uh, which I really like, uh, and it's very much a case of less is more, where where you have just the five of them, and and even though they have some overlapping, uh, it's not as much as what we saw with um, in in Dark Ages Mage, where you had the the one version of the pagan mages, and then you had a slightly different version of the pagan mages <laughs> who also were Vikings. Uh, so so yeah, they, I I really like how they have uh, uh, distinguished the different orders from each other. So we move on to the specific order, starting with the Order of the Poor Knights of the Passion of the Cross of Acre, uh, a knightly order. Did you say Poor Knights or Poor Knights? <laughs> uh, I, I went for Poor Knights. So uh, we're, we're ho hopefully they were, they were Poor Knights. Yeah. And it might seem an overly long name, but it fits because the Templar's full name is the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon, while the Teutonic Knights are the Order of Brothers of the German House of St. Mary in Jerusalem. They didn't believe in short name for knightly orders back then, so it, it fits that they have this long name, but they're usually just called the Knights of Acre or the Knights of the Cross. Yeah, well, the, lo the longer, the more important you are. It's, it's the same with no noble titles. Exactly, size matters. Uh, this order is founded by Gauthier de Dampierre from Bitter Crusade and Under the Black Cross. And it makes sense uh, as part of the Inquisition being a knightly order. And they have possession of uh, the part of the true cross that was taken from Acre in the uh, Under the Black Cross book. I have two comments about these guys. Uh, the first concern their ranks where they have uh, knights and then one can be promoted to cavalry and then commander. But... A knight is per definition cavalry. That's what knight means. So I thought yeah. that was perhaps a bit weird. Um, then there's the organization where they're divided into what they call tongues, which represent the order in different countries, each speaking a different language. Among the tongues are Provence, Auvergne, I'm probably mispronouncing that, and France. Now, while I'm willing to believe that Provençal and whatever they speak in Auvergne at the time are somewhat different from French, these regions are in fact in France, so it's not a different country. And finally, there are the outlook on other orders, and this is a general thing. There is a lot of dislike and distrust between the orders when you look at the sidebar that describes attitude towards other orders. 
Mm. And that, that kind of annoys me. It seems that the writers either inserted this to create some more internal tension or they're just inspired by the other games where the various groups or races or whatever you want to call them have a degree of animosity. But I feel like this shouldn't be nearly as prevalent here since they're all accepted by the Inquisition. They're all fighting the holy fight. So it, it seems odd that there's that level of animosity and mistrust. Yeah, I I agree I, I don't mind a bit of distrust. Um, anyone who knows about the, like the internal politics of, of the kingdom of Jerusalem, for example, <laughs> would know that that people would, even though they were literally fighting the same enemy, they would still bicker amongst each other to the detriment of the entire kingdom of Jerusalem. Uh, it, it, it's actually one of the things that, that come across, even though not very accurate, but they kind of feel in... Um, isn't it just called Kingdom of Jerusalem with with Legolas in it? Kingdom of Heaven. His, Kingdom of Heaven. Yeah, uh, but but yeah, I to get back on track. Yeah, I do see why they might want some like differences and and kind of uh, not necessarily schisms, but but kind of disagreements that that the knights kind of see themselves as where where the the fighting men who do the cool stuff while the others are just standing around looking in books or meditating or somewhat um, but but at the same time as as you say they're all supposed to be working together um, and and the only one that I could really see being really uh, or, or holding any strong animosity to anyone else would be the ocular day because they're the paranoid bastards who are paranoid even towards their own order uh, which I, as a side note, I really, really like. But, but yeah, again, it's like we're we're not even talking about like the the FBI being somewhat um, annoyed at the ATF. We're talking about the same AT or the same FBI task group being annoyed at each other. So it doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, it. Yeah, it's just. It seems that they want to create the kind of internal tension that we have in a, in a lot of other games, where I think this game is one where you could have a lot more cohesion and unity, because in the end, you are the chosen of God, and you are fighting the good fight against the, the demons. But, I mean, there might, be, there might be a lot of people who want to have the sort of, of internal... Uh, tension that this creates. I'm I'm just not for it when you're playing the, these people that are really called to a holy cause and are are filled with the knowledge that God exists and they're doing God's work. So the people that they're working with should also be doing God's work. But that's that's it, different different strokes for different folks. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, next is the Red Order, a monastic order with both men and women who have a very radical Inquisitor from 40k vibe to them using thematology called the holy art and being obsessed with gathering knowledge. Peter, what do you have to say about these guys? I, again, like you said, they're, they're a very, um, uh, very 40k-ish kind of feel to them. Um, what, what I find like the, the weirdest thing about them, because all through all these stories, they mention quite a lot that, that the Inquisitors have to hide from their um, from from the monsters that they hunt because otherwise they will just be torn to shreds. And then we have an order who is dressed mainly in the color red, which it the, the color red, especially in a medieval setting, 
stands out like you you both both from from like an an actual visual perspective but also because red uh, symbolizes stuff like red red symbolized the the uh, the cardinals uh, it it could be at times um, the symbol of, of an executioner if i'm not mistaken and also at at certain points in time uh, prostitutes had to wear a red badge so so it's a very obvious color uh, and it shows that like red is quite expensive to make it's not it's not the most expensive but it's it's not a very discreet color to run around in if you're hunting people um, but I don't know except for that I, I think the weirdest thing is that they're supposed to live in uh, in monasteries and as we all know monasteries monasteries is where vampires live <laughs> and so uh, but but yeah I guess we're kind of moving away from that new new edition new new times I guess um, but yeah I, I I think they're fine I I'm not really intrigued to to play one I think but um yeah yeah i, I think they're they they fit the role so to speak mm. uh one thing that i really like about them is that they are knowledge gatherers but they also they share knowledge it's sure they're they're not going to lend out the only copy of an extremely rare book but they're not the kind of knowledge hoarders that oh nobody must know what we know they're like okay we found stuff out we're willing to to tell you because it can help you in the in the fight, so that at least is is good because there is a tendency to make knowledge hoarders in in games also be someone who won't share their knowledge. So bonus points for that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And next we have the Sisters of Saint John, an order of nuns who have holy visions and specialize in exorcisms and detecting evil. They also take care of inquisitors who have been wounded mentally and physically, as well as those who have been hurt mentally and physically by evil, such as, for example, unwilling minions who've been rescued uh, from their demonic masters. I like that they're an order of nuns, so only women can be part of this order. This balances out the Knights of Acre, who are obviously all male. But what did you think about them? Yeah, I, I like uh, I, I like that they they're the the whole thing with the visions and and stuff like that is kind of cool. And and as you mentioned, they're they're kind of a balance to um, to the knights, uh, and and. Like they they mention it here and there that that women are are uh, really second class citizen during the medieval time, but but at the same time, if if you fast forward about hundred and sixty years, you have the Canterbury Tale, which includes a nun in the traveling party uh, of uh, of the pilgrims going to Canterbury telling their tales. So so it's um, I I think um, a, a troop of inquisitors is. Like that's a good place where a nun could really fit because like they it makes sense that they travel together so you don't have to have like shoehorn something in into the whole uh, oh you're a woman why are you out alone or or whatever like it's yeah it's it's my goddamn job and and go bother someone else basically God blessed job um, surely yeah exactly yeah that's true Ho- hopefully at least uh, but. Uh, but but yeah, it's um, there. There are a lot of cool storytelling devices that you could use. Like all of the uh, all of the orders have not only blessings and curse curses, but they also have order benefits uh, and um, and and drawbacks. Uh, and the the curse of of these nuns is that they have 
uh, visions of like horrible visions uh, of of the um, the last judgment and of torture and and things like that. So so you can you you can obviously use that quite a lot as a storyteller to to set a scene or something that uh, perhaps the 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 sister character has found a way to subdue those visions at least every once in a while, but all of a the sudden they come upon something and and damn all those visions just comes back or or it's the uh, the villain who is just turning them back on as a way to to attack uh, the the non character uh, so yeah it's a lot of cool things that you can do with them um, and and I again I do like that it's it's a fairly uh, how to put it a fairly independent group of women that that they have their thing and they do it and and it's very obvious that that they're really important to the shadow inquisition uh, as an organization uh, so they're not just relegated to the role of being the party healer so to speak yeah and it it's also being a nun is one of the most powerful and independent things a woman can be mm. in the Middle Ages. You had some uh, mother superiors in various convents around Europe that held immense power and had a lot of of freedom. So it's nice to have this because obviously you can always change things in your own games, but if you like running a game that cleaves very closely to how the Middle Ages were, then yes, unfortunately, women are quite restricted. So here you have uh, an opportunity for women to be very independent, just like you have in Vampire, where once you are embraced, then gender divides don't matter nearly as much. So that's that's really nice. Then comes yeah. House Murnau, a sprawling Bavarian noble house that in the past made a deal with evil, or maybe they were cursed by evil, or a female member of the house got it on with a demon. Whatever the case they have the ability to literally smell evil and to draw upon the curse in their blood to fight against the devil's minions. And one of their members ended up pledging the entire house to the Shadow Inquisition. I really, really like these guys. And I could see myself actually using them in other games. I think they're really fascinating. Even if I ignored everything else about the Shadow Inquisition as presented in this book, I think these guys have some great potential, especially in a game of vampire i i could really see myself using this idea of this noble house that might have been cursed might have demon blood in them and having the ability to just detect vampires that's just i think they're really cool yeah i i really like them and and i really like the whole idea of this cursed noble family and and it they mentioned that the curse really runs down the family and like especially on the on the male side but but that it it can pop up like if your if your grandmother was a Murnau then you could also have it even though they they married outside of it uh, I do I do like that they mentioned the the <laughs> the the age old uh, European noble tradition of marrying your cousins <laughs> uh, and or and also that they're keeping tracks of it so it doesn't become too inbred because that's how you get Habsburgs and you don't want to get Habsburgs and, and but but <laughs> yeah with the, we yeah we we don't talk about Habsburgs uh, too much but but yeah I, I really like this uh, these guys because they have the kind of vibe I get is is one uh, one part very much kind of like 
um, HP Lovecraft, yeah. where, where you have like this this almost degenerated or at least cursed uh, ancient family. And on the other hand, it's it's also very much Terry Pratchett, where you have these again noble people that have a, a, basically a mission in life, but they're also not not necessarily horribly disfigured, but they're just really weird in some way. Um, and and so you could you could really make some really interesting characters with them. Um, I we, we're gonna get to that later, but I, I started looking at the um, uh, merits and flaws that we we get in a later chapter, and and just realized that you could you could make a really interesting um, and uh, and and just in some ways really powerful, but in other ways just really really weak. Uh, member of the House of Murnau that I think would be really fun to play, uh, but it's it's just it's not a happy character. Let's put it that it's like it's it's almost almost a windswind kind of character. And like yeah, I I know that I'm gonna end up doing this. I don't want to do it, but I'm 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 I might as well volunteer because I'm gonna end up being the one appointed doing it anyway. Yeah, and obviously the name we know that it comes from fw Murnau, the guy who directed the nosferatu film and everything yeah but it doesn't matter yeah. because it it's a cool sounding name and it just it it works in context and one of the things that i also really love about them is this is one of those things where you can't trace it back to anything specific you can't say oh well this is vampire or this is werewolf or this is mage yeah. this is something supernatural and as is the, always the case the unknown is is also is always more scarier than the known if you don't know what's going on then that is that is more insidious so you can't just say ah well these guys were uh, cursed this many years ago using this ritual and we might be able to do yeah. something about it. No, it's like we don't know what's going on we don't know how it's going to express itself so yeah these are just really well done so kudos to whoever came up with the house of Muir now because i i want to use them outside of dark ages inquisitor yeah, yeah they, they could really fit in pretty much anywhere uh, and and just to uh, they're not the only one or the only ones that are named uh or, or have the name borrowed from other characters uh, I think there is at least a few names that I recognize that that are medieval names, but I, I recognize the names from the name of the rose. <laughs> so, uh, which is a, a very obvious and mentioned inspiration for this, and and it you can tell it's it's noticeable, but it's in a good way. So yeah, that's um, a, a lot of this is is really really cool. Yeah, um, we end with the Oculidei. Uh, the Eyes of God, a widespread spy network that was made by Rodrigue de Navarre, uh, who's mentioned in Iberia by night, after his knightly order fell afoul of a canine and he realized how difficult they were to fight head on. And I really don't like these guys. They're super secretive and I feel like they would encourage the kind of player who refused to reveal anything about their characters to the others in the group and lie to cover things up and that in most cases not all, but in most cases, that really annoys me. I also think that of all the orders, they have the weakest explanation as to why they have their faith powers, and I'll get into that in the second half of the book. And finally, the whole idea of them feeding information back to their headquarters in Iberia while maintaining the kind of secrecy the text describes, it doesn't seem plausible to me in the medieval world, not at the level that they're at. So yeah, 
they really don't work for me. Yeah, I, I see the that they could be problematic in the way that you mentioned. At at the same time, I I really like the idea of of a secret organization that has become so secret and paranoid that it it's almost dysfunctional. Um, like uh, one of their their weaknesses basically that that they become paranoid and distrusting in not only their own order but also in themselves. Uh, which in in a way it feels kind of of Terry Pratchian or or also kind of Lovecraftian, uh, but but yeah, I I definitely agree that they could lead to this the the kind of problematic gameplay that you mentioned, um, and I I think it's a case of uh, quite an interesting idea, but not necessarily a good execution. I I think you could do more with them like for example if if they work in pairs because you have two eyes (laughs) so you should have two ocular agents at all time uh and perhaps one of the pair is posing as um, as something else perhaps as a member of another order or just a servant or something but but you have the two and the two eyes know that they can always trust each other um and but but at the same time they're they're also supposed to keep eyes on each other uh, um, no pun intended uh, but perhaps they don't because they trust more in each other than they trust in the rest of the organization uh, and so you, you could have some interesting things with it but again the execution uh, wasn't really that smooth uh, but I would I would love to see someone actually doing something cool with them because they have potential. Yeah. And that's the first half of the book, so obviously we won't judge the entire book until we've finished it, but we can take a look at the first half. Uh, History-wise, there are some amazing info in the second chapter, as mentioned, and some slip-ups that we've gone over. I really would have liked some more info on how the Catholic Church operates in the Middle Ages, since two of the orders are monastic orders and one is a militant order of monks, and it's mentioned in the text that inquisitors can be priests, canons, and other clergy. One major oversight is that they don't even mention that members of the church can only be tried for the church for any crimes, even secular ones, Mm. which can be hugely important in the course of the Inquisition's work. So if you kill, say, a vampire school, then, you know, you've committed murder. You may not be able to convince the local authorities that this was an evil creature. But if you say, yeah, I killed him, but I'm a priest, so you can't convict me of murder, only the church can do that, then that becomes very important. Then you have to convict the local, uh, convince the local bishop that, look, I'm a part of, of the secretive inquisition. You can't tell anyone, but you have to let me go. So I think that should have been mentioned. Especially since most likely the local bishop might be under uh, vampire uh, influence or something, which could make it even more interesting. Um, yeah. But but yeah, it's it's a very good point to to point out. Uh, of of course, you you could still be handed over to the secular because again, the the church doesn't execute anyone. They they might sentence you to death, but it's it's the secular powers that actually has to burn you or behead you or or whatever. So uh, it it might only be a temporary respite, but that's usually good enough for for any role-playing parties yeah so, and if if the uh, um if the church 
thinks that, okay, this guy committed murder and then threw himself on the mercy of the church just because, you know, he hoped to avoid punishment. The church can basically say, yeah, he committed a crime. We're, it's only the church that can convict him. However, we are going to waive that right and let the yep. uh, secular authorities deal with him just to show the secular authorities that the church doesn't always protect criminals within its own ranks. So there's a lot of interesting game that can be played there. And that's something I think is missing from the text, this examination of secular mm. versus church justice and authority. Yeah. So as a game book, Completely. well, we haven't gotten into game mechanics, but I will say that the book does a very good job of explaining the methods and outlook of the Shadow Inquisition and the Order. So that at least is a good part of the game book. I completely agree. Uh, it's uh, fun is perhaps <laughs> the not not the correct word, but it's it's intriguing and the the moods and everything that they set up, like the the, the illustrations, are for the most part very suiting. Uh, Sure, they might be a bit too Warhammerish, but I think that um, I, I, I think that I, I don't think that most pro players who actually play Dark Ages Inquisition uh, would actually have a, a huge problem with that if it doesn't go overboard. I think like one of the reasons why uh, the Witch Hunter in Warhammer and uh, the Inquisitor in in Warhammer 40k are so iconic and and so popular is because you kind of have this um, th this exaggerated uh, medieval feel to it, and and I think that goes both ways. That if like if if you want to play um, a Warhammerish Inquisitor, but in a more uh, historical setting, then I think this game really gives you that uh, in in a good way, and of course you with your group can always set the level yeah, exactly. on how exactly how much do you want so so yeah some some of the pictures are a bit over the top but overall so far uh, i i really like the things that i have mentioned that i like and i really dislike the things that i mentioned that i dislike <laughs> excellent so uh next time we will finish off dark ages inquisitor Remember, if you want to support the channel, we have a Patreon. And if you have comments, suggestions or critique, you can pop by our Facebook page. And with that, Peter, do you have any last comments before we sign off? Uh, no, I, I just wish uh, everyone will have uh, some an, a nice Easter uh, or that they had, because I think this will be released afterwards and, and that the weather will finally decide which season it will be. So, so I don't have to adjust all of the time <laughs> because it's it's boring now well uh i know i'll have a happy easter because i've seen the uh the easter eggs that my wife has bought for me and there is a lot of them Ooh. there are kinder eggs in four different sizes i will post pictures <laughs> and so <laughs> it is goodbye from me jacob and from me peter farewell and see you next time bye